1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And with that, you can be seated. Well, this morning and next Lord's Day morning, we're going we're gonna to slow down just a, a little bit. And I, I want to take a look at the issue of doctrine, the issue of doctrine. And specifically, how do we think about the importance of doctrine in our, in our own lives? And I really want to use verse 3 as sort of a launching uh, pad for for this issue of of doctrine. Uh, if you remember, I, I mentioned last week that First Corinthians fifteen is all, often called the resurrection chapter of the Bible. It is the longest sustained treatment on the issue of the resurrection of Jesus and how it relates to our future resurrection that we have anywhere in the Bible. The first half is really talking about the significance of Jesus's resurrection. And then the second half is more about what will our resurrection look like? How much can we actually know about the resurrection body? Uh, but in all of this, Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is central to the gospel message. You have no gospel if you have no resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's absolutely imper- uh, imperative uh, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And just, just to be super, super clear, if someone says they do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, they are not a Christian. They cannot be a Christian because that is central to the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we preach. And in this, this section, actually, Paul gives us a list of several things that are essential. Uh, in verse 3, he calls them of first importance to the gospel message. I don't think that this list is exhaustive. I think there are some other things that are essential to the gospel message. But I think what Paul's point here is to sow the centrality of the resurrection in the Christian life and in our Christian doctrine. Um, there are some other beliefs there as well. What, what I want to do this morning actually is use this passage though as a launching pad to, to think about how do we think about doctrine in general. Uh, verse three, like I mentioned, Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is of first importance. It is protos in the Greek. It is chief. It is primary. You cannot leave it out. It has to be there. It's more important than your view of the age of the earth, whether you're old earth or young earth or whatever. It is more important than your understanding of the role of women in ministry. It is more important than your particular understanding of the theology of the Lord's Supper and what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. It is primary. Now, that should actually give us cause to pause and say, well, if there are primary things, then are there secondary things? And the answer is yes. There, there are secondary things. Um, and this is, this is where we get into a discussion of doctrine. Now, when I say doctrine, a lot of people, like, they roll their eyes and they think of old dusty books, um, you know, that sort of thing. All, all we mean when we say doctrine is what the Bible teaches about something. That, that's all we mean by, by doctrine. So the doctrine of the Trinity is just what does the Bible teach about the Trinity? One eternal God, three eternal persons. 
That's, that's what we're talking about. Even if you're four years old, you have doctrine. It's just what you believe about God, what you believe about the Bible. Maybe your four-year-old doctrine is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three in one. That's great doctrine for a four-year-old. That's really good doctrine. But, but that's all we mean is, is, is what does the Bible teach? So the word theology, uh, and the word doctrine are often used synonymously. So a doctrine of the Trinity or a theology of the Trinity are basically uh, the same thing. Now, uh, as I mentioned, we, we all believe in, in something. Anytime anybody asks you, what does the Bible say about blank? That's your doctrine on what the Bible says about that. That's your theology of what the Bible says about that. And I, I want to give a little side note here because I even heard this amongst pastors at the Shepherds Conference. These are, these are all pastors. They, they would say something like, well, well, I don't do theology. Well, actually, yes, you do do theology. Maybe you don't like that word, but you do do theology. Again, if somebody says, well, what does the Bible say about angels? That's a theology. You are bringing to bear the entirety of what scripture says about angels when you give that answer. That is your theology. Maybe it's really good. Maybe it's really bad. Maybe it's biblical. Maybe it has nothing to do with the Bible, but that's your theology. I've I heard others say, well, you know, I don't really care about theology. I'm a biblicist. I just say what the Bible says. And that, that sounds really nice until, again, you ask somebody, well, what does the Bible say about a particular topic? And then you are doing theology all of a sudden. Yes, we, we want to be biblicists. We want our theology to be rooted in Scripture, but it doesn't do any good just to say, well, I don't do theology, I do the Bible. Well, you're, you're doing theology if you're doing the Bible. Like, that's, I don't know what to tell you. So, so everyone has theology. What, what I want you to walk away from this morning is that not every doctrine is of first importance. That's, that's our big picture here. Not every doctrine is of first importance. There are some doctrines that are of first importance. We'll talk about those. But not every doctrine is of first importance. And we need to be able to, as believers, categorize which doctrines go in what kind of order. That's maturity. That's discernment. To understand that our view of the Trinity and our view of salvation by grace through faith is different than our view of the, the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. That those are fundamentally different levels when we're talking about doctrine. Because I think there's basically two ends of the spectrum of people who are unable to categorize doctrine in a helpful way. It's like, it's like two ditches on the highway when you're driving down the road. So you got, you got people on the one side who swerve into one ditch and they basically make every doctrine of equal importance. Every doctrine's of equal importance. So the age of the earth and the resurrection and their view on the gift of prophecy and the Trinity, and what version of the Bible they use, and whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, and roles of men and women, and head coverings, and the inerrancy of Scripture, and and do we call it Easter, or do we call it Resurrection Sunday? I don't care what you call it. I call it Easter. Like, But they make all of these critical level, first important doctrines. That's not good. That's That's just not discernment. They say, well, they're not all the same, but they're really close. They're really close. And, you know, this is really common, actually, in conservative circles, fundamentalist circles, quite frankly, somewhat like ours, where, you know, we, we don't want to, we don't want to give an edge on that because that's compromising. And, and if we compromise, then we're a denier. And if you're a denier, you're probably not even Christian. And maybe worse, you're a liberal. <laughs> Man. 
Now, that list that I gave, are those issues important? Sure, they are important. Because what does the Bible say? We need to know what the Bible says. We don't want to compromise. But we have to understand that they are not equally important. And that's discernment. And that's maturity. So that's one problem, is flattening everything out and saying everything is a first level. The other problem on the other end of the spectrum is where people sort of have this minimalistic view of doctrine, where they basically go, well, if it doesn't relate to salvation and what Jesus said, then I don't really care. Right? All this other stuff that everybody talks about, I, I just don't care. I don't want to argue about it. You know, I, I just I, I just want to talk talk about Jesus. Those other things are divisive. Well, that sounds nice and godly until you actually go to the Gospels and you see what Jesus talked about. What about when Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? Do we get to talk about that? What about if, if Jesus says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I've had people leave the church because I just read that passage. Do we get to talk about those passages? Or when Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Did Jesus die for absolutely everybody or just the elect? Or the whole discussion on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is talking about the temple being overthrown and destroyed. Was, was he just talking about 70 AD? That's, that's actually my view. Or is he talking about something in the future? Do we get to talk about end times? Jesus touches on all these things. So just to say, well, well, if it doesn't have to do with salvation or what Jesus said, actually doesn't solve any problems. As believers, we should love all of Scripture and understand the difference in importance in doctrines. Look back at Matthew 23 for just a moment. Speaking of Jesus, talking about the importance of various doctrines. Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, we have what are called the seven woes of Jesus. It's basically where he's pronouncing judgment on the hypocritical leaders of his day, the, the hypocritical religious leaders. And what he does in Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, is he touches on the reality that there are some things in the Bible that are just more important than other things. We should do both of them, but we need to understand that there is, in fact, a distinction. So take a look, Matthew 23, down in verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the religious leaders tithed out of their spices. That was actually part of the law. Was anything that you bring in in terms of produce or whatever you were to tithe off of. And they were meticulous at that. He's like, your spice rack, you like tithe out of your spice rack. That's that's pretty nitty gritty. That That's pretty small. But Jesus says, you don't show justice. You don't show mercy. You don't show faithfulness. Jesus says, those things are the weightier matters of the law. Those things are more important than tithing out of your spice rack. Now, should you tithe? Sure. But don't neglect this. His solution is actually do both. 
But understand that there is a priority. There's a priority of those things. And I think Jesus is getting that from Micah 6, 8, where the Lord says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We need to be able to categorize what is most important in the Christian life. These other things, it's not that they are unimportant, it's just that they're not as important. So as we look back to 1 Corinthians 15, how do we think through this? Well, I want to borrow a little bit of a framework that I heard uh, a couple years ago. Noel, if you want to put that up on the, the screen there. This is not my own, uh, but I found it helpful as I think about doctrine, and it's basically this chart. So this chart, you can if you had like four baskets of, of the importance of different doctrine, would you put it in the, the to-die-for basket? Or would you put it in the divide-for basket? Or the debate-for basket? Or the decide-for basket? And so the, the top is most important. Working down is less important. Where'd it go? It's over here. Okay. The top you see on the, on the top left there, that's where we have, the, the, the issues are more important and they're more clear in the Bible. And as you work down the list, they are less clear and less uh, important in the Bible. And so that's actually going to be our outline over the next two weeks. This morning, we're going to look at the things that we die for and divide for. And then next week, we're going to talk about things that we debate for and we decide for in terms of doctrine and theology. Uh, other people will do a, you know, a first level, second level, or a third level, you know, primary, secondary, and tertiary, that sort of thing. I, I've, I found this to be helpful. So, so number one, doctrines that we would die for. These are things that, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, are of first importance. These are beliefs, you guys, you better be willing to lay down your life for. That you would give up your life to hold on to these truths. If someone were to point a gun at your head and say, deny that Jesus died or died for your sins or deny that Jesus rose from the dead, you'd say, I'm sorry, I'm not giving that one up. You're going to have to pull the trigger. These are things that we are willing to die for. If someone says, deny the Trinity. Nope. I'm going to, I'm going to die for that one too. Why? Because salvation is on the line with these truths. These are, these are of eternal consequence. These are essential to our faith. And if someone rejects them, they are not a Christian. I, I don't know how to make it any more clear. These are the first importance, the protos. And you say, well, how do we know if something is to die for level doctrine? How do we know if it is first importance? And the answer is that the Bible usually just tells us. It tells us what these, these levels of doctrine are. And it tells us basically in two ways. It'll tell us either you have to believe this to be saved, or if you reject this, you are not saved. It'll do it in two different ways, and we'll see examples of both of those. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see examples of, of what, what Paul gives us that are critical to our salvation. So here's a few things that we would die for. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So we see that Christ died for our sins. 
This is substitutionary atonement. It's a doctrine of first importance. It's all the things that Andy just mentioned. That Christ, though sinless, he took our sins upon himself and he placed his righteousness on our account that happened on the cross that happens only by faith it's substitutionary atonement and this is central to the gospel message this is the gospel message that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures what else do we see the second thing we see here is the priority of the scriptures notice how many times paul mentions the scriptures in this little This little section, verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. The scriptures are of utmost importance to us. The scriptures are essential. Why are the scriptures essential? Because if we don't have the scriptures, we don't have the truth that's contained in the scriptures. There's a guy named Andy Stanley, and he has done everything he can to undermine the truthfulness of the word of God. And most recently, he's even said, we don't really have to to worry about the truthfulness of scriptures, just the message inside of them. And you're going, what does that mean? These are either true or they are not. If they are not true, then we should just go home now. If they are true, then we should orient our entire lives around them. That's first level importance. By the way, if you look at people's statements of faith or doctrinal statement of their church, usually you know what the very first issue it addresses is? It's the scriptures. What do they believe about the scripture? Why? Why do that one first? Because if you don't have that one, if the scriptures are not the word of God, if they are not trustworthy, inerrant, infallible, if they are not true, then everything else that they have to say is worthless. We hold these up as first importance. Now, Paul probably has in mind primarily the Old Testament. We see other places, of course, where the New Testament is gathered in as Holy Scripture as well, but this is the foundation of everything else that we believe. So if we throw the scriptures out, then we're sunk. This is the big battle in the, the 70s and in the 80s over what's called the inerrancy of scripture. This scripture is inerrant, without error. The minute you start injecting doubts and you start injecting error into the scripture, they're gone. I mean, if scripture is wrong at one point, it's, it's probably suspect at the very least at every point. Did Jesus really die? Did he really rise? I mean, how much can we trust this? And our answer is 100%. 100% we trust the scriptures. Third, in line with the rest of the chapter, is the resurrection of Jesus is of first importance. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he also appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The resurrection is central to the gospel message. And Paul couches this in space and time. It's not just believing that Jesus raised again in my heart because I really want him to. And that sounds nice to me like a fairy tale. No, he really, really was dead and he really, really did come back to life. And you can go talk to people. Well, you you could, right? You go talk to people. 
Who all saw him? 500 people at one time saw the risen Jesus together. So it's not, it's not this little, you know, secret handshake club that, you know, oh yeah, we'll just make up this thing. No, it was a public display of half a thousand people who saw him all at the same time. And it's central. And what's interesting, also of central importance in this section, which we'll get to in a few weeks, is not just Jesus's resurrection, but our resurrection from the dead when Jesus comes back. Notice he connects the two in first importance. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, talking about in the future. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you catch that? If if somebody denies the future resurrection of all believers... They are functionally denying that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the same level of importance because they're tied so closely together. So if somebody denies a future resurrection, then they are not saved. Some people think, well, eschatology is unimportant or it's boring. The reality is that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is our whole hope. It's what Peter says we set our entire focus of our lives on. And there are some parts of eschatology, if you deny it, you're not going to see the Lord in his glory. You're going to see the Lord in his wrath. Resurrection is one of those issues. Our future resurrection is a to-die-for issue. What are some other to-die-for issues? Look over at Second John chapter 1. There's only one chapter. Just a page or two before Revelation. In Roman times, there were people who believed that, that basically everything that was physical was bad and that everything that was spiritual was good. That, that's not true, of course, right? When God created the physical world, he said it is good. Six times and then seven times says very good. God created physical matter. It's not intrinsically bad. But that, that teaching began to creep into the church. That all things physical are bad, things spiritual are good, and, well, we, we can't have Jesus actually be fully human because then he would be physical, and physicality is bad and it's sinful. And so they, they said, well, he, he just seemed to be like a human. He's not fully human, but he just seemed to be human. Um, and John says, no, if you deny the humanity of Jesus, if you deny that he came in the flesh, you have no gospel. Your gospel is gone. So in Second John, verses 7 through 11, he addresses that. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 
Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any kind of greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So so usually we talk about how Jesus is fully God, how he is truly God. Amen and amen. But you know what else what else we need to, to hold to? That he is truly human. He is fully human. Two natures, one person. Together. That is crucial. In fact, it's so crucial that if you have somebody who claims to be a Christian, claims to be a brother in Jesus, but he does not hold to the fact that Jesus is truly human, not only do you not greet him, but he's not allowed in your house. He is not to be given any kind of warm welcome because he has denied the faith. He is now a deceiver. He is, John says, the Antichrist. Those are fighting words, you guys, over something we don't usually think about all that often. You have, to have, you have to have a solid doctrine of who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. Let me show you another interesting passage. 1 Timothy chapter 4. As you're turning, let me just say that if you look at our doctrinal statement, you see that it's about five pages stating what we believe. And it's, and it's organized by various topics. And it's all positive affirmations, meaning it, it only says what we do believe. But there are some doctrinal statements, actually, that have a section of affirmations and then a section of denials. And there's a reason for that. Sometimes you can only say so much about what you do believe positively until you have to kind of go, and we don't believe anything else, right? So we would say there is only one true and living God. That's our affirmation. And then we would deny that there is any other divine being. So an affirmation and a denial. Because you could just go, well, is Moloch God? No. Is Baal God? No. You could do that forever. So sometimes a denial in a doctrinal statement just wipes the slate clean. It makes it easier. So, so we have to understand that sometimes we also look for denials, things that people would deny. Well, this is kind of interesting here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Your view of food and marriage could also keep you from being in the faith. I don't know how many doctrinal statements you've looked at, but your view of food and marriage is usually not in a doctrinal statement. But if you add that to the gospel, if you make those things first-level importance, then you have a problem. Take a look, 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Those are fighting words. That's pretty damning. Look in verse 3. What do they do? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. When he says in the later times, he means even in his time. He means that after the coming of Jesus, people are going to, they're going to say, look, you need to believe in Jesus to be saved, and you need to keep a kosher diet. You need to believe in Jesus to be saved, and... 
you're married to Jesus, so you can't get married to anybody else. And he says, that sinks the ship. You have denied the faith. You're no longer recognized as a believer. Paul says in Galatians that if someone says that salvation is by faith in Jesus plus circumcision, it's the same thing. You've denied the faith. Anything that you add to the gospel will sink the ship. Anything. These are to die for issues. And they are just really clear in the Bible. And the Bible says they are critical to believe in order to be saved. Usually the Bible makes these things explicit, but not always. We have to use some judgment. Let me give you, let me give you one thing that is, that is a to die for issue, but we just don't talk about very often. But I want you to think through this a little bit. What about the virgin birth? Is the virgin birth essential to believe in order to be saved? How important is the virgin birth? What happens if you deny the virgin birth? Let's flip it around a little bit. Is Jesus sinless if you deny the virgin birth? No. He now has a sin nature, just like Adam. Can one sinner die for the sins of another? No. What does that say about all the prophecy in the Old Testament that a virgin would conceive and bear a son? Is that trustworthy? No. What happens about all the gospel writers who said he was born of a virgin, but he's really not? Are they trustworthy? No. You take out this little thread and the whole gospel collapses. The virgin birth. Something we only talk about about once a year, but is central to our faith. Okay, doctrines we would divide over. Now, when I say divide over, what I mean is that there are issues that we can disagree on and we can still have um, fellowship calling each other brothers and sister in Christ. These are, these are not salvation-level issues, but the issues are big enough that it probably makes sense to do church in separate locations because of the weight of the issues and because they usually affect how we actually do church. Okay, so the divide four issues definitionally are, are basically the reason you're going to see differences from church to church. And you're going to see these reflected in doctrinal statements. So we're going to talk about doctrinal statements a little bit and that sort of thing. Um, but we're talking about whether or not it makes sense for us to worship together with another believer who has significant doctrinal differences with us. So let me give you, let me give you three examples. So should we baptize babies like our Presbyterian friends? And should we worship with, with Presbyterians in the same con- congregation? Um, I don't believe that there is a biblical case for what is called pedo baptism or infant baptism. I don't, I don't believe that case can be made. Um, every single instance of baptism we see in the Bible comes about it after someone gives a credible profession of faith. Our Presbyterian friends would disagree and they'd say, listen, all the believers, all of their children are part of the covenant community. And the way we recognize that is through the sign of baptism, sort of like circumcision in the Old Testament. And they would say whole households were baptized in the book of Acts. And there had to have been babies in at least some of those, those houses. So, so we see some of that. And these promises, in the, especially in the book of Acts, that we have in Christ are given to us and to our children, is what they would say. And so baptism to them is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. So why would we divide over this? 
Well, first of all, let me tell you that some churches don't divide over this, actually. Some of the issues that we're going to talk about on the dividing line there, people, people have differences of opinion, whether they should even divide on those things. I'll be honest, if, if Kevin DeYoung or R.C. Sproul, whether he were still alive, you know, moved to Deer Park and started coming to RBC, you know, wanted to become a member, I might, you know, think about that a little bit. These are faithful brothers in the Lord. And here's an interesting thing. I, I talked to a Presbyterian guy down in California at the Shepherds Conference a few weeks ago. He's from the Bay Area. And he said when California shut down churches, the only church that was even remotely close to him that was open uh, was a Calvary Chapel. So he's pres- Presbyterian. And so he goes to a, a Calvary Chapel. Very much not Presbyterian. Very much not. So Presbyterians are cessationist. They're infant baptizing. They have a covenant view of scripture. They're sacramental when it comes to the Lord's Supper. They're amillennial or postmillennial. They're Calvinists. Um, Calvary Chapel is charismatic. They hold the believer's baptism. They are dispensational, memorial communion, pre-tribbers, and they're usually Arminians. I mean, you could not get further apart from that. But here's the beautiful thing in that. Even, even he decided, look, there's, there's, there's different levels of importance. And you know what is most important is that I gather together with the people of God. And so we gathered together with the people of God for a year and a half until a church opened up. So even then, he's, he's trying to understand what is, what is worth dividing over. But I thought that was, I thought that was really neat. Why do we put this in as a divide issue? The, the issue of infant baptism. Well, here's where I land. I'm, a, I'm dedicated to believer's baptism. I'm dedicated to, to only baptizing those who have made a, pre, a credible profession of faith. And if somebody who was, was an, you know, held to infant baptism asked me to, to baptize their infant, I, I could not in good conscience do that because I don't believe that little guy has saving faith. And so my conscience would be violated to do it, and I'm wondering if their conscience wouldn't be violated if they couldn't get it done. And so we would be at this impasse. How, how do we do that? I, I know friends who, who actually, um, their, their congregation invites both. I don't know how they do it. I, I don't know how they, they work that out. We could probably do church together, but overall it seems to make more sense, as R.C. Sproul once said, to live in separate houses but to have low fences, to be good neighbors with other believers. Another issue we might divide over is the role of spiritual gifts in the church. So say somebody believes really, really strongly that speaking in tongues is no longer functionally in operation. It's going to be really hard for them to go to a Pentecostal church where that's almost expected every week to happen. It, that, that's going to be, that's going to be difficult. If you don't believe that that gift even goes on, it's hard to, it's, it's hard, it's going to be hard to worship on a regular basis with those who do. And conversely, if someone believes they have the gift of tongues, but they, they go to a church where, where that church doesn't even believe that gift exists anymore, that's going to be very hard for them to work out together. At RBC, we don't draw a line on that issue, but many charismatic churches do, and many committed cessationist churches do. So some people have decided to put it in the divide category. Another reason that people might divide is the role of women in leadership. At a church. So look over at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I actually think this is a more critical issue than the other two. 
because it defines who has authority in the church. Can women be pastors and elders? Can women preach in the church? Or can women exercise authority in the congregation over men? And I think the Bible is just very clear that the answer is no. So if you look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived because she became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul is getting to the point that women are not to be blingy, but to be modest in every way. And men are to be peaceable, quick to pray with one another, not, not starting fights, that sort of thing. But Paul makes it clear that women are not to teach men or to exercise authority over men. And Paul makes it clear that the reason is that it's not that they're not capable. It's not that they're, they're, they're inferior in some way. It's simply because God designed the role of men and women differently. And he, and he grounds it in, in Adam and in Eve. Now I'm not gonna touch the save through childbearing. Just know that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. We can talk about that later. But the point that Paul makes clearly is that women cannot teach or exercise authority. In the very next chapter, those two qualifications are, are part of the qualifications to be an elder in the church, to teach and to exercise authority, which is only given to men. But there are some churches that say women in leadership is okay. They would say, we don't, we don't need to divide over this. This is, this is okay. Many Methodist churches, many charismatic churches... Presbyterian churches on the more liberal side and even non-denominational churches allow for women in various roles of leadership and even pastoral ministry. I would divide over that because that is intrinsic to the nature of the church and how the church operates. I, I think women in ministry is a larger issue than pedo-baptism or spiritual gifts because the Bible expressly forbids this on the ground of the creation order. So I think this actually becomes an issue of obedience and even sinfulness. Now, there are other issues that we could talk about to divide over. Church government. How do you, how do you, how do you run the church? How, how does the church operate? Views on end times, views on the millennium, the age of the earth. I'm not saying that we should divide over those things, but some of those things are reasons that people divide. And on my chart, Noel, is my chart? The computer died. The computer died. All right, well. So there's die, there's divide, and then there was that line. And on that line, I put next to it, statement of faith. So usually when you read a doctrinal statement or a statement of faith, it's dealing with those issues to die for, and it's dealing with those issues on divide for. That's what they're, that's what they're doing. And, and, and in most statements of faith, they don't, they don't necessarily indicate which is which. Not every issue in a statement of faith is a to die for issue, but they're all at least at a divide for issue. That's what they're trying to tell you. They're trying to tell you, hey, this is who our church is. And these are some of the elements that are important to our, our church. And I would say, I would say if a doctrinal statement is really small or if they don't address any of the divide for issues, 
then they probably have a very low view of doctrine. Or they do have divide for issues, they're just not telling you what they are. They're the secret issues that the, the elders know and maybe some of the longstanding members know, but they're not going to publicly display what those things are. You have to kind of find those things out. Sometimes you can tell what a church is just by asking, well, what type of church do you go to? And the answer to that question, you guys, is usually the divide four issues. When you say, hey, well, what, 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 what's your church like? You know what they're telling you? They're telling you the divide four issues. And that's okay. Hopefully they hold to the gospel, but that's what they're holding to. So what is RBC like? Well, RBC is a Reformed Baptist church that is complementarian and expositional. We're Reformed and that we're not Arminian, but we see that the Lord has to work to regenerate a sinner. We're Baptist in the sense that we hold to believers' baptism. We're complementarian in that men and women are equal in the eyes of God, but have different roles in church and in family life. And we're expositional, except for this morning and next week, and that we go through the verse or through the Bible verse by verse expositing scripture. Okay. I, I just want to be just hang with me for two more minutes. Because that's all like church doctrinal statement e issues. So let's forget about that for a minute. Let's talk about how do we relate to other believers who we might divide over? They go to a different church. They have a different view on these things. Maybe you're at camp or a retreat. You bump into someone in the store. You find out they're a believer. You start talking. They go to a different kind of church. How do you deal with somebody who has different views than you do on divide for issues? I think the first thing that we should do is rejoice that there are a brother or sister in Christ through the gospel. That's the first thing we do. Usually when we find out someone else is a believer and they go to a different church, our first instinct is to go, how are you different than me? Bad first instinct. First instinct, praise Jesus, we're eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. That should be our first instinct always. The second instinct should be that we don't shy away from talking with people about these issues if they're willing to discuss them peaceably. We should be able to talk to our paedo-baptist friends why do you think that, that that we should we should baptize babies? Sometimes we view people with these different secondary beliefs as weird or whatever, and it's like we're not going to talk about that because that's odd, and I don't even know what I believe. And you know what? Open your Bible and ask them. What do you believe? And have an open heart and an open mind, and, and look to the Scripture to guide your conversation. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can talk about the word of God gently and peaceably and reasonably for God's glory. All right, next week we'll get the debate and decide on issues. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have delivered to us as of first importance the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the salvation is all by faith, all through your grace. Lord, help us to hold fast to those things and think wisely about the rest. For your glory, we pray. Amen.